Take your Bible with me tonight. Go to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, and we are extremely slowly, but very surely going through the life of Elijah. And uh, we've taken several weeks off, it seems like, but every other week or two, we'll hit a lick on it a little bit. We're going to hit a big lick tonight, all right? So we're going to march up Mount Carmel together and watch the fire of God fall on the altar and consume the sacrifice. And, uh, and then the bad guys, they all get killed at the end, all right? Sounds like a great story. Let's read it. In fact, we're going to read a lot of Scripture tonight. If I was Brother John Morgan, I'd say we're going to read more Scripture tonight than some of you read in a whole month. Amen. But... Uh, I'm not going to say that. That would be mean, but it might. I hope it's not true. But uh, I do want to read quite a bit, so I want you to just hold on and listen. And I don't know what you do when you read a lengthy portion of Scripture, but I know I struggle. My mind, it just goes about three verses in. My, I'm, already, I'm thinking about something else, and then I'll get to the end of the chapter, and then I'll realize, you know what? I don't remember anything that I just read. And I'll have to go back, and then uh, I'll do it again. And so it takes me a while to read one chapter of the Bible sometimes. We're not going to read an entire chapter, but we're going to read the majority of chapter number 18 tonight. So do your best at paying attention. Try to imagine these things in your mind, the people, the scenario, the way it was all set up, and a good imagination to help you uh, understand the Word of God real, real well. Okay, so let's do that. And we're going to begin reading. Why don't we just go back to verse 17, all right? Let's go to verse number 17, 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse number 17. The Bible says, And it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal 450 and the prophets of the grove 400 which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks. And let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods. And I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first, for ye are many, and call on the name of your gods. Put no fire under, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, 
for he is a God. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth, must be awake. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was passed, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench, around, or made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four barrels of water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran, ran round about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. I'm going to stop reading right there. I believe we have read a good portion of Scripture here that should be able to tell us a story. I'm not going to give a big lengthy introduction because that is it right there. Do you see what's going on? This amazing event on Mount Carmel. Here's what I want to do tonight. There's so many things. You read that much Scripture, there's a, there's a million messages in those verses that I just read. But if you'll let me tonight, I just want to pull out three. I'm going to preach three messages, all right? Isn't that better than a million? Somebody say amen. Okay, all right. No, what I want to do is I want to give you three main lessons. Obviously, big headings. I think uh, if you could take probably all those million lessons and maybe put them under these three headings, and obviously it'll be just a flyover because there's no way, uh, unless the unless Lord put it on my heart to do it at a later time, but there's no way we could dig in and, and, and parse every sentence here. But I want you to get the big story. I want you to get the big picture of what God is doing on Mount Carmel. And I want to point out three lessons three lessons that I see 
and that we learn on Mount Carmel. And so since we're learning lessons on Mount Carmel, I'm just going to title the message this tonight, Mount Carmel University. We're going to enroll tonight in Mount Carmel University and we're going to let God teach us three main lessons uh, as we study at Mount Carmel University tonight. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us receive these lessons tonight. Father, we love you. We're thankful for the privilege we have just to open up your word and learn what you have to tell us. Lord, you told us that uh, in the New Testament, you told us that these Old Testament stories were written for our learning and for our exhortation. And so, Father, I pray that we would learn the lessons, Lord, that, uh, that we might uh, uh, be able to, uh, uh, to miss out on some of the heartache of disobedience in our own life. And, Lord, that we'd be able to enjoy sweet fellowship with you. Help us to learn from the mistakes of these in the Old Testament. Help us to learn from the from the wrong decisions and from the uh, uh, bad choices, Lord, and help us to make the correction in our own life. I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would be our teacher tonight. And, uh, Lord, just use me for your glory, I pray. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, here we are on Mount Carmel, and all of you are the students. We're all the students tonight, even me. And uh, we are enrolled in Mount Carmel University, and we are going to learn the lessons. But I want you to think about the scene just for a minute, where we are on Mount Carmel. If you were to look on your maps in your Bible, you probably have a map. I know I do in my Bible, and, and, and it just depends on what kind of Bible you have, not King James or otherwise, but just who the publisher is, what maps they put in there. And, uh, and you probably have a map that shows you the divided kingdom. Uh, and if you'll look at that map, you'll see Israel is in the north and Judah's in the south. Well, we're in Israel. We're in the north, okay? Ahab is the king. Jezebel is the queen. And we're in the northern. They, they really struggled. Judah every now and then had a good king, but Israel never had a good king. They always were wicked. They always served idols, always in idolatry. And that's where it is. There's a little piece of land that just jets out just right oh, just on at the top of top of Israel right there that's Mount Carmel Mount Carmel overlooked a great sea they tell me that it was a very beautiful place in fact the word Carmel means vineyard of God that's what it means this was a place of God's beauty in fact Solomon when he's bragging on his wife in the song of Solomon some things he says uh, makes me blush a little bit but one thing he said uh, was that she had a face that was beautiful like Carmel. That's in Song of Solomon, I think it's chapter 7, I think it is. Yeah, 7 verse 5. That her head, talking about her head, was, uh, was as beautiful as Carmel. And I'm not quoting that exactly, but Carmel it was a beautiful place. Mount Carmel was a beautiful place. And it was a place where God was worshipped. At one time, there was an altar of God in Mount Carmel because we just read where Elijah did what? He rebuilt that altar. So at one time, that place was used for the worship of God. But that is not so anymore. It seems like all the land is turned over to Baal worship and that is what is going on. Jehovah worship, true worship has been replaced with false worship, with idol worship and in a place that was a beautiful place for God has now become an ugly place for the devil. And I tell you what, man, isn't that like a lot of lives we see? I don't want my life to become that way. I want my life to be a beautiful vineyard for God where God is worshipped. But that's where we're at. If you can imagine the scene, up on this mountain, overlooking a sea. And... Uh 
Here they are going up Mount Carmel and uh, to show that God is the true God. Only one God will be vindicated. It's amazing to me how God gave Baal all the home field advantage he could possibly get. Say, look, you choose which bullock you want. You get your wood. You build your altar. In fact, you do all that, and you have all the time you want. You can take all day. In fact, they did. All the way from in the morning, they passed lunchtime. They went all the way until the evening sacrifice, and they went all day long calling on the name of their God. Elijah gave them all the time in the world. He gave them first choice. He said, we're going to do it on your home court where you want it. And then when Elijah built the altar of the Lord, he had it doused in water. How about that? Three times they put water all over it, dug a trench, it filled up all of that. Listen, I'm going to tell you, now I'm not smart and I probably couldn't survive one and a half days camping in the wilderness. All right? Y'all know that's true. All right? Camping to me is staying at a Motel 8 instead of staying at the Holiday Inn. That feels like camping to me. All right? I couldn't survive much longer. But I do know this. If I'm going to start a fire, I ain't going to put wet wood. I'm not going to try to start a fire with wet wood. I'm not going to put water on the wood to try to start a fire. I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous. What was Elijah doing? He was showing by the end of this thing, there was no doubt in anybody's mind, no way, no how, no doubt that there is but one God and His name is Jehovah God. I love it when God shows off, don't you? I love it when He shows out and shows off in such a way that you you know there ain't no way in the world that anybody could doubt that was God. And man, I got some times in my life I can go back to and think, there ain't no doubt in my mind, that was God. No doubt about it. Because that was an impossible, not just an improbable situation, but that was an impossible situation. And look what God did in that situation. Amen. Amen. I'm glad God can do it. Listen, there ain't no problem too hard. There ain't no altar too wet for Him. Amen. Talk about, you know, people talking about, you know, fire in the church and wet blankets in the church. Listen, the kind of, the kind of, the kind of fire that God does, a wet blanket ain't going to put it out. Amen. And there are enough wet blankets in the church to pour water on your fire, no doubt about that. But listen, God's fire, it don't matter. It'll overcome anything. Amen. No doubt about that. What are these lessons? Can I give you three real quick? Three lessons we're learning on Mount Carmel here enrolled in Mount Carmel University. Number one. First of all, I see this. I see there's a lesson about the insufficiency of idols. The insufficiency of idols. For God to prove His power, He has to absolutely uh, show the absolute vanity. That means emptiness. Uh, the futility uh, of idol worship. He has to, without a doubt, like we said, prove to these people that their idol worship is absolutely ridiculous. And so what does he do? He lets them act like a bunch of ridiculous fools all day long just so they can realize that there is absolutely nothing in the heavens that is listening to absolutely anything that they are saying. And the contest is simple. The process... Uh, it doesn't seem to be very complicated at all, but the solution, the answer, seemed to be a very complicated thing for the prophets of Baal uh, to produce. And they started in the morning, and they prayed all the way until noontime, but we find here that it was all to no avail. Man, can you, there's no doubt about it. I'm going to tell you something about these, these prophets of Baal. There's no doubt in my mind that they were sincere. Listen, you don't stand out there screaming and hollering and hooping all day long unless you really believe what you believe. Isn't that right? 
In fact, the Bible says that not only did that, but in verse number 28, they started doing what? They started cutting themselves. They started, man, if I just, if I hurt myself, maybe I'll get the attention of Baal if I, if I do this. And they, and they leaped up on the altar. They leaped up on the altar. Probably looked like, a, like some kind of Benny Hinn uh, uh, crusade or something like that. A bunch of tongue, tongue flapping uh, crazy junk going on. And they leap and they're jumping around like a bunch of bozos and, and crying out and they're cutting themselves and, and as ridiculous as it sounds. And listen, by the way, don't get mad. Elijah's making fun of them too. Elijah mocked them. Look at verse, is it verse 27? Is that what it is? Elijah's mocking them. He says, uh, is it verse 27? Yeah. Elijah mocked them. Cry loud, for he's a God. Either he's, he's talking. Maybe, he's, maybe your God's talking to somebody. Maybe he's just on the phone. He's on the other line. He's just busy right now. Maybe he's pursuing. That just simply means uh, uh, maybe he's out hunting or he's uh, on a business trip or something like that. It, it, it's, 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 a, it's a journey with, uh, with, with, with purpose to it. He's out pursuing. He's, uh, he's on a business trip. Or, or, or maybe he's in a journey. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's decided to take a trip. Or maybe he just got tired and he rolled over to take a nap and go to sleep just for a little bit. You better just cry. Maybe if you were just a cry just a little bit louder. Maybe he would wake up and hear what you have to say. But here's the sad part. As sincere as they were, they were absolutely wrong. They were sincerely wrong. Because the Bible tells us that worship must be in what? It must be in spirit, yes. And it must be in what? It's got to be in truth. I don't care how sincere you are. Spirit, that's not talking about the Holy Spirit now. Now, it's good to do everything in the Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit. But when Jesus said that, He's talking about your spirit. He means it's got to be inside. It's got to be in here. It can't be just external. It's got to be internal. And I believe that about worship. That's worship even the true God. It's got to be inside. If it's just something you do on the outside, listen, that, that, that's not it. Worship is something that starts on the inside. It breaks out from you from the inside. But it's not just spirit. It's not just really believing. it. It's not just, just being sincere on the inside. But worship is in truth. And notice one of the saddest things that I read in this text. As sincere and as serious and as committed and as dedicated. By the way, these people, they were here from morning till evening. That's dedication right there, ain't it? They were dedicated. That's dedicated. They weren't just Sunday morning only, Baal worshipers. Amen. They went all the way. It was all day church for them. They began to sacrifice them on themselves, cut their own stuff. These people are absolutely committed to everything that they are doing. But look what it says, verse number 26, at the end of verse 26. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. Look at the end of verse number 20, 29. And there was neither voice, nor any to answer nor any that regarded. Do you see something just a little bit different in those two verses? He said there was no voice, so there was no voice that answered, right? And then verse 26, it says, neither any that answered. Nobody answered them. But verse number 29 says, neither voice, what does it say? Nor any to answer. Listen, listen. Not only did nobody answer them, there was nobody to answer them. They were praying to nothing. 
They were praying to something and somebody that did not exist. No one to answer. No one to regard them. That word regard means to care about them. They were literally cutting themselves, but nobody cared about them. Can I tell you something about idols? And can I tell you something about idolatry? Listen, there's nobody there. The problem with idolatry is, the psalmist put it like this in Psalm 115, they have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. And they that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. The absolute insufficiency of idolatry. You live in idolatry. By the way, you don't have to worship Baal to be an idol worshiper. Amen. Listen, we got all anything that takes the place of God in your life, any kind of hobby, any kind of sport, any kind of love any kind of lust, anything in your life that takes the place of God, takes the place of number one, takes the place of worshiping God, that is an idol in your life. And let me let you in on a little secret about that idol you got in your life. It, You may love it, and you may sacrifice for it, and you may commit to it, but it don't love you back. Your idols do not love you back. Amen. Some people give their life for fishing or hunting. Can I tell you something? That stuff don't love you back. People commit and all kinds of stuff for hobbies and ball teams and all kinds of things. They'll give their life to all kinds of money and to jobs and to pleasure and all kinds of stuff. And you may love it and you may sacrifice yourself and you may commit to it. But let me tell you something. That stuff doesn't care about you. And you'll find you'll come to the end of your life one day and you'll be just as empty as you started. But can I tell you something about God? When you worship Him, He fills your soul with joy and with love. Listen, you love Him. In fact, we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. I'm glad there's a God in heaven. I'm glad there's a voice in heaven. I'm glad there's somebody up there that actually cares about me. In fact, He loved me so much He gave His Son to die for me. Amen. I don't have to shed my blood for him so he'd hear me. He shed his blood for me so I could call on him. Isn't that a blessing? And he ain't ever busy on the other line. He hears, listen, Jeremiah 33, right? Call unto me, I will answer thee. I'm glad, I'm glad that he hears us every single time you've ever prayed. He's never on another line. Listen, a million, I mean, a billion people could be talking to him all at the same time, and he's so great. He's so omnipotent. He's so omniscient. He can speak to everyone. He can help you. We can all call on his name at the same time. Central's never busy, the song says. It's always on the line. You can talk to heaven anytime. Thank God, I'm glad you never get a busy signal when you call heaven. He's never out on a trip. He's never on a vacation. He never takes any time off. Amen. I got to take time off, but God never has to take time off. You may call the preacher and you might get a voicemail, but you'll never get that with God. Amen. He's always ready. He says, my throne room of grace is open and you can come in anytime and find grace to help in a time of need. He's never sleeping. Listen, the God of Israel, He never sleeps and He never slumbers. He never takes a nap. He never gets weary. He never gets tired. He never wears out. Thank God we have the true and the living God. 
all that other junk you're letting run your life and you're committing, you're giving all kind of stuff. You're sacrificing your children and your time and your family and your heart and your dedication for a bunch of junk that don't even love you back and will never fill your life. These people, they left just as empty as they came. And that's idolatry. There's been so many in America. They've climbed the ladder of success. They've stepped on people. They've sacrificed family. Listen, they've sacrificed all kind of things just to be like Solomon to get to the very top and realize they ain't nothing there. If Solomon had all the money and Solomon had all the building projects and Solomon had all the women and he had all the music and he had all the entertainment his heart could ever want, he never told himself no and he gets to the end of his life and he says, it's vanity, it's vanity, it's It's all vexation. Everything under the sun will just leave you empty for fulfillment and for satisfaction. you got to go to what's over the sun, what's beyond the sun, where God dwells. And that is the problem with idolatry. It is absolutely insufficient. It will never satisfy you. In fact, I love one of the terms the Bible uses for idols and idolatry in the Bible. I love this. You need to look it up. It's called lying vanities. That's what that's one of the terms. That's one of the that's one of the uh, the terms for idolatry, lying vanities. I love that. That's a great way to describe idolatry. Deceitful emptiness. Vanity is emptiness. It's nothing. Lying. We know what that is. It's just deceitful emptiness. Something you believe is there, but it's not. And that's all that can give you. And something that is vanity, that's all that it could ever offer you. Most people are in that state today. They're serving something that does not exist, that does not satisfy them, and will not save them in the end. If you want to live your life for that, go ahead. But your fate will be the same as these prophets of Baal. I think you ought to give everything you got to God. I think you ought to live for God. I think you ought to lock, stock, and barrel, sell out, worship Him. I think you ought to be number one. I think people ought to think you're crazy. You're a fanatic. You're an extremist. You're a fundamentalist. You're, you're crazy. You're radical. I think people ought to think that because you love God so much that it seems like all the things that normal people care about don't even seem like much to you at all. Amen. That's the best life you'll ever live. Not only do we see a lesson about the insufficiency of idols, but secondly, I think here in Mount Carmel University, we see a lesson about the grace of God. The grace of God. You know, you can always find grace when you're looking for it, no doubt about that. I'm always looking for grace in the Bible. I like to see grace. I like to see the grace of God in different passages. And and, and at first glance, it seems like maybe this passage is about the judgment of God, right? The fire of God falling, that's a type of judgment. Uh, At the end of the story there, uh, all the prophets of Baal and prophets of the grove, they're all getting slaughtered down there by the river. and, and, uh, And so it just seems like this is just a big judgment in Elijah, you know, confronting the people at the very beginning and saying, you know, pretty much like Joshua said, you know, choose this, you this day, whom you will serve. You know, don't, how long are you going to halt between two? You know, make up your mind. So you got a preacher preaching at people and then you got fire falling. And then you got prophets dying. It just seems like from beginning to end, this whole this whole story is about the judgment of God. But you don't have to look real hard, but you can find some grace. You can find some mercy in this text. You say, where do you see the grace of God? Let me. Get, I'll show you three things real quick. Number one, you see it in 
first of all, I'm going to call it the manifestation. God's manifestation. And this is just, just think about the whole entire story itself. Think about this. God, I mean, this whole story is a testimony to the fact that God desires, God wanted to reveal himself, manifest himself to these people. God could have let the Israelites continue in idolatry. God could have let them just go on and do whatever they want to do. But God did what? He sent a preacher. And then God sent a drought. All these, You know what that preacher was for? To get their attention. You know what the drought was for? It was to get their attention. And then when they still were kind of halt between two opinions, what did God do? God gave them a no doubt about it sign from heaven that God is still there and He is still real. When that fire fell, do you know what that was? That was God telling His people, Hey, I'm right here. I'm real. I still love you. I still want you. I want you to know who I am. I want to have a relationship with you. And I want you to have a relationship with me. Come on back. Amen. That's what that fire meant. It was God saying, I'm still here and I still want you. Isn't that a blessing? Aren't you glad for the times where God has just manifested Himself to you and showed you don't matter where you're at or how far gone you might be. God says, hey, I'm still here and I just want to show you. Maybe it was a message. Maybe it was a song. But God revealed Himself to you. And just the fact that God desires for us to know that He is there absolutely blows my mind. Because He's the self-existent one. He don't need you. He don't need me. He don't need any of us. But He wants us. Isn't that amazing? Say, explain that. I can't. That's just called grace. It's the grace of God. It's what you get and you don't deserve it. Amen. The grace of God. He manifests. The goodness of God, the Bible says, leads to repentance. Now, if I was God, it would be the other way around. Repentance would lead to the goodness of God. You get right with me, I'll be good to you. Right? Whew, that ain't how God is. <laughs> He said, no, I'm just going to be good to you and it'll bring you back. Amen. And I am so thankful that God, even in our worst state and even on our worst days, He wants to come and say, here I am. There's grace in manifestation. Not only do I see grace in His manifestation, but I see grace in the restoration. There's a restoration that goes on here. Look at verse number 30. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And look what it says. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Now, I don't know why this altar had been broken down. It doesn't say. Now, there's a lot of educated guesses that we could make. So altar was probably torn down. It probably was. It was probably taken by, by, by men's hands, these prophets of Baal or whoever it might have been, and they tore this altar that was dedicated to Jehovah and tore it down, probably at the order of Jezebel. Have Jehovah's altar. The prophets killed, the altar's torn down. That's what, that's what Jezebel ordered. It was probably done. Maybe, maybe, and because we don't know about this specific altar right here on Mount Carmel, maybe that's what it was, or maybe... This altar had just fell down because of lack of use. Nobody was there anymore. Nobody put a sacrifice on the altar to Jehovah God. The morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, the burn offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the peace offering. 
None of that was going on any longer. And maybe just because of lack of use, maybe because nobody ever cared for this altar or did anything with it or took care of it or kept it together, maybe just over time, maybe it just began to dilapidate. But whatever was the reason for its decline, we see that Elijah, and I like this, this helped me when I looked at it. Elijah, he went to that altar, and brick by brick, stone by stone, he began to put that altar back into place. And the grace-filled truth is this, is that when the fire of God fell, when the fire of God fell, and it revealed and showed everybody who God was and that He was still there and that He still cared. And when the fire of God fell, that fire fell on a rebuilt altar. And that encouraged me so much because I am glad that God will meet you and God doesn't mind moving on rebuilt altars. Isn't that a blessing to know that? That when we let our life and we let our spiritual life and we let our worship life and we let our private devotional life, when we let that get in disrepair and when we let it go afar off and when we let it decline and we let it go downhill, listen, God said, all you got to do, just put it back together. He said, I'll meet you at the rebuilt altar. I'm glad God doesn't mind moving on rebuilt altars. Isn't that a blessing to know that? You got some altars that's been torn down in your life. Maybe, maybe you've let sin just rip them brick by brick, piece by piece. Maybe you've just let apathy and time, a backslid heart, maybe you've just let that altar decline and go down. Can I tell you, if you'll, if you'll come back to Him, if you'll get back at that altar, I'll tell you what, God doesn't mind moving on rebuilt altars. And I'm thankful for it. I said this the other night. I kind of this is I studied this a while back, and I let the cat out of the bag, and I didn't mean to, but I'm gonna. I got to put this in this message, even though I said something about it the other day. But I see the grace of God not only in the manifestation and not only in the restoration, but I I see the grace of God in the substitution. You see, the people, these idol worshippers, Israel in idolatry, they were the ones that were worthy of God's judgment. But yet, what happens when the fire falls? Does the fire fall on them? No, the fire falls on the sacrifice. Aren't you glad that Jesus took your place? Now, here is what... Now, I didn't... I saved some for today. I saved some for tonight. I didn't tell you this the other day. But the Bible... Look at, you, look at your Bible. It'll tell you. In fact, let me tell, I'll tell you what verse is that way you know. Verse 29. Look at verse 29 real quick. It says, and it came to pass when midday was past. So they started in the morning. You have to go back and look at that. I, I can't remember. Yeah, if, verse whatever it is. They started in the morning. I, I don't know exactly what time, but I'm going to say 9 o'clock. That's morning time, right? And they went all the way till noon. 9 to noon. Three hours. And then, of course, when Elijah started mocking them, they, they got louder and started cutting themselves and all these things. And they went... The Bible says in verse 29, And it came to pass when midday was past, so noon is past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. You see that? They went all the way to the time of the evening sacrifice. Look down at... Uh, there's, there's, another, there's another verse here. And um, 
Man, if I could find it. Oh, yeah, verse number 36. Look what it says. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. Do you see that? Now, why? Two times the Holy Spirit lets us know what time the fire of God fell on the altar. It came, Brother Mitchell, at the time of the evening sacrifice. Do you know what time the offering of the evening sacrifice was made? It was made in the ninth hour. It was made at 3 p.m. It was made at 3 o'clock. Do you happen to know at what time Jesus cried out from the cross after those three hours of darkness? Do you know what time He cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you know what time He cried out, It is finished. Do you know what time He yielded up His spirit and gave up the ghost? It happened to be at the time of the evening sacrifice. It happened to be at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and at 3 o'clock in the evening, that's when the fire of God's judgment fell. That's when the sacrifice was consumed on Elijah's altar. And that's the exact time that the sacrifice was consumed upon Calvary's altar. Jesus took your place. That should have been me. The judgment of God should have fell on me. I was the idolater. I was the sinner. But thank God, He who knew no sin, became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I'm glad that He took my place. And the fire of God fell on the sacrifice. Said a follow- you say, what is that? That's just grace. When the fire of God comes down and it consumes something else instead of you, that's grace. Because you deserve it. So do I. The grace of God. Man, thank God for grace. Isn't that good? Give you one last one and I'm done. Not only do we see a lesson about the insufficiency of idols, and we see a lesson about the grace of God. But lastly, I believe we see a lesson here about the seriousness of sin. If you'll look in verse number 40, and I'm done tonight. Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them. Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. How about that? What a gruesome scene. Now, I don't like, I don't like bloody stuff. When it's on TV, I turn the channel. I look away. Um, when the kids are bleeding, they have to go to mama. Mama's having a baby. Daddy's doing something else. I don't, I don't look, I don't do nothing. I don't look, I don't, I don't do that. That's a gruesome scene right there. Verse 40. I don't like that kind of stuff. I don't even want to think about it. I don't even know how this worked out. Elijah's one man. In fact, he mentions that in verse number 22. I only, I even remain a prophet of God. We'll, we'll deal with that later. I'm not sure if he's altogether accurate on that assessment, but we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 19. But, uh, you know, it's just me against 401, against 400. Now, how in the world... Did he slay 400 people? Well, here's what he did. He told the people, verse number 40, isn't that right? Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And so you got the people. They surround the prophets of Baal. And they, I, I'm a, this is what I'm guessing. I don't know. You correct me if I'm wrong. But it seems like to me, these people are holding these men hostage. And they're, they're holding them hostage in a line and they're going to the slaughter. And Elijah takes the sword, I guess, and he slays them one by one. 
I can't imagine the scene. You know, some people think, well, this is a little excessive, a little extreme. I thought, I thought you said God was a God of grace. And to, to, to those of us that might think, well, this is excessive, this judgment is extreme, let me just say this. I don't think you understand how serious God takes sin. He takes it very seriously. In fact, God takes the sin of idolatry very, very seriously. I don't have time tonight because I'm, I'm, I'm out of time. I've preached long enough. But I, I, I wrote down some scripture. And maybe, I, maybe I'll take it maybe I, because it could be a message in and of itself. Maybe I, at a later date I'll do this. But you can go through the book of Deuteronomy as Moses is rehearsing the law and rehearsing God's will for them before they go into Canaan land. And you can go through the book of Deuteronomy. And I, I got the scriptures right here and there's even more than what I wrote down. And you can, we could go through there together and you can find all the places where God said, don't let them live. Put them to death. Put them to death. If anybody tries to introduce idolatry to you, when you go into the land, don't mix with them. Don't marry with them. Don't mingle with them. Don't, don't go into business with them, don't don't habitate with them, kill them, remove them, get them out. Why? Because that's how serious God is about the sin of idolatry. And when it comes to sin, although we might have our little pet sins just like Israel did when they went into the land, they mingled with them, they married with them, they become family with them, they become in business with them, they, 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 they taxed them and they thought we could make money out of them. But what did it do? It turned their heart toward other gods. And can I tell you, though we might look at something and say, that's no big deal. God has never looked at one sin and said, oh, that's not that bad. God's never looked at one sin and said, oh, that's no big deal. In fact, God, when it comes to sin, says, remove it all, kill it all, take it all. When you get to the New Testament for the Christian, it's words like mortify the deeds of the flesh. Put to death sin. Mortify it. Kill it. Don't let it live. And the question is not why is God so mean? The question is why are we so lenient when it comes to sin? The question is why are we so tolerant? You understand the things that are sin that we've now just grown accustomed to and we laugh at? We make fun of and we act like it's a big joke? You understand God took it so seriously He sent His Son to die for that sin. I don't know, when I read verse number 40, I think, God ain't joking around. He takes sin very, very seriously. And though some of us and some of you in here, you got your little idols and your little pet sins, and you think it's no big deal. You think it's not a big deal at all. I'm here to tell you, you need to wake up, friend. It is a huge deal. Anything you got in your life, anything you have in your life that you love more than God and you give it your time and your money and your love and your devotion and it takes the place, it takes precedent. Well, you have to choose between church and it and you choose it and it's a God in your life. I'm here to tell you, God takes it real seriously. He wants you to take your sword out and He wants you to hack it up. He wants you to cut it into pieces. He wants you to remove it out of your life because though it may seem like a not a big deal to you, it is still a real big deal to God. He said, don't tolerate it. Don't suffer a witch to live. Don't suffer an idolater to live. Don't suffer all this stuff to go on. Kill it. Remove it. Get it out. Get it out of your life. Don't let it in. May we guard our lives against sin. May God's assessment, may God's evaluation 
of sin be the same assessment that we have in our life? And it's not, why is God so mean? It's why are we so tolerant? Why are we so lenient? Elijah was just simply doing what the Word of God prescribed for him to do. I'm here to tell you, look up here, everybody. I'm not, I may preach another 30 minutes. Y'all keep looking at me like that, all right? Let me put my glasses on. Oh, hold on. Y'all look a lot better. Never mind. Never mind. Sorry. I'm going to tell you something. Listen. Listen. I'm talking about that sin you think nobody that you're laughing at and joking at and chuckling at. You think it's nobody. Listen, it's going to kill you. Do you understand? It's going to absolutely murder your life and your home and your children and your marriage. And you tolerate, just, you give the devil just an inch. You let one prophet live and I promise you there'd be idolatry keep spreading around. Kill it all. Get it all. Get it all out. All of it. God's a teetotaler when it comes to sin. He don't tolerate none of it. Thank God for grace. I preached on the grace of God. you all hear that? Thank God for grace. I'm going to tell you something. It seems like that's all this generation wants to preach about. And, about, and it's all, and the, and the preaching sounds something like this. Listen, we're all sinners, and you know, nobody's perfect, and so just leave it. Look up here. That's a bunch of hogwash right there. My Bible says, be ye holy, for I am holy. Amen. Get the sin out of your life. Get serious about sin. Cut it out, or it'll cut you up. John Owen, the old Puritan writer, says, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. It ain't a joke. You don't joke around, jest around, mess around with that junk. It'll kill your life. Amen. Some of you need to kill your cell phone, kill your TV, kill your internet. Amen. Kill your whatever friend. Don't kill somebody. Listen, don't kill nobody, literally. You understand what I'm saying? I might kill that relationship. You understand? You don't, they don't that influence. Cut it off. If they're influencing you, if they're taking you, man, and I want to go to Deuteronomy 13 so bad right now. But I ain't gonna do it. Read Deuteronomy 13. Everybody write that down. That is homework. Deuteronomy 13. He said, man, if somebody tries to, somebody tries to slip you an idol, say, hey, hey, look, I got some idolatry over here. Let me give you something. God said, you know what? You need to expose them. You need to kill them. That's what God said, Deuteronomy 13. He said, somebody said they dreamed a dream, or they're a prophet, and they said, hey, I got a dream from God, and we ought to, ought to go worship this God over here now. God said, nope, kill them. That's what God said. And he said, if it's a friend or a family member, he said, if it's your brother or your sister, and they try to get you to worship idols, he said, nope, drag them out and kill them. That's what God said. He said, if any other city around you, a bunch of... He said, get rid of them. Get rid of them. You say, that's so mean. The God, the God of the Old Testament, he's so mean. No, he's serious about sin. He's serious about it. And if we learn anything on Mount Carmel, we learn that God is serious about sin. Miss Maddie, you've got to come around or I'm going to keep preaching. Elijah was just simply doing what Moses said to do in the law. If you want to get the blessing, if you want the rain, see, God, this had to be done. Those prophets had to be killed because that's what God said to do. God said, Look, you go into idolatry, I'm cutting off the rain, I'm cutting off the blessings. But if you'll kill those idolaters and everybody, 
that has to do with everybody's promoting that stuff. Everybody's pushing that stuff. If you'll get rid of them, put the idols out of the land. He said, I'll turn the faucets back on. God could not cut the rain back on until those prophets were dead. Because if he did, he would be going against his own word. I'm going to tell you something. Listen, look up here, church. I'm done. I preached a long time. Look, we need God's rain here. We need it bad. We need it so bad. We need revival. We need the rain of God. We need, we need God's showers of blessings on this place. My family needs it. My kids need it. Your kids need it. Our youth group needs it. Everybody needs it. Every family in this church. We need, we need the rain of God to fall. And we're not going to get it unless we start killing some sin. We're not going to do it until we get serious about it. Quit playing around with it. Quit going to eat lunch with the prophets of Baal and murder them. Kill them. Quit inviting them over. And cut it off. Or we're going to live in a famine. We're going to live in a drought. We're going to die thirsty. When God wants to bless. God wants to move. God wants to more than we even want Him to. God wants to forgive. He wants to pardon more than we want to repent. But He ain't going to do it until we get serious about sin. Amen. Let's stand together.